You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. I think not only would you have a popular uprising, but I do think that Congress and the presidency would find ways to block the judiciary I've seen this described as like Democrats need to learn to fight dirty, uh, but it's not dirty. I mean, I live in D.C. I don't have Senate representation. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, we are back with Ian Milheiser uh, for what's going to be another episode in his uh, podcast miniseries on our democracy and, and our vote. Uh, this this is the episode that I'm on, right? That, that's right. Yeah, this is um, you're going to be talking about some potential solutions to a really big problem. I mean, the, the theme of this episode is how our democracy is broken. You know, so just to throw a few facts out there, if you are 30 years old, you have only been alive for one election where a Republican won the popular vote in the presidential election. And yet, you know, Republicans have dominated many of these those years. They're about to gain a supermajority on the Supreme Court. So this is an episode about how our democracy is really no longer producing democratic results and then hopefully some things that can be done to fix that problem. And so at the top, we've got Norm Ornstein, who's, uh, you know, uh, was a longtime pillar of, of the Washington establishment, um, has become fiery in his old age. Um, and he's 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 really at it here. Right. I mean, he's he's worried about what's going on. I, I mean, Norm has been warning people for 10 or 15 years that our Congress hasn't been functioning, that the Republican Party has gone off the rails. But I was a bit surprised at how fiery he was. I, I, I mean, he is warning about a legitimacy crisis because people will no longer tolerate a system where our elections aren't producing democratic results. At some point, you know, he warns that there's at least some risk of violence. And so this is, you know, a really fiery episode. So we're going to we're going to hope for no violence, uh, but it's great. I mean, it's a it's a great interview with Ornstein. It's really uh, drove up my sort of level of concern about this. And then then I, I, I'll come back at the end with with some ideas. So obviously, this is this is probably the best episode in the whole series, but it's it's all gold. Um, so check it out. I think you guys are really going to enjoy. So as Matt and I were just saying, my first guest is Norm Ornstein. Norm's an expert on Congress. He's a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a center-right think tank here in D.C. And, well, this is an alarming interview. It's not alarming because I think Norm's wrong, and I don't think that the worst-case scenarios he lays out are the most likely outcomes. But I think he's right that when people lose faith that their elections are producing democratic results, really terrible things can happen. And this interview really draws out some of the ways that things could quickly go off the rails. Um, before we go to the interview, I just want to make one quick programming note. This was recorded right before President Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. So you'll hear us reference Justice Ginsburg's replacement without naming her. Uh, the reason why is because we did not know the name when this was recorded. And with that, let's turn to Norm Ornstein. Norm Ornstein, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Ian. Thank you. So unfortunately, I'm going to start with some pretty grim scenarios. Um, and then we'll get grimmer. 
Yeah, and it, it's just going to be depressing all the way down. That is my brand. Um, so the first scenario is, let's say that the election's close, but um, it looks like Biden's going to pull it out once all the absentee ballots are counted. And then Trump files a lawsuit to stop those ballots from being counted. And the Supreme Court, in a five to four decision, joined by Trump's new appointee to the Supreme Court, hands down a decision throwing the election to Trump. What do you think happens to the country next? I think we uh, go into a period of significant violence and upheaval. Uh, I think we have an analogy right now, uh, which is Belarus. Um, This is what happens when dictators lose elections, fix them, use courts that are no longer independent to accomplish those goals. And what should be particularly pointed out here in that scenario, Ian, is that the federal government has no role or any significant ability to stop vote counts. It may be a flaw in our system that our elections are run through states, uh, federal elections, but that's the system as it is. So that kind of a decision by the Supreme Court, which if we were in a different universe, we would say it can't happen because it is so obviously unconstitutional for them to do this, can happen now. And it might be 5-4 or potentially it could even be 6-3. So, I mean, I'm interested that you went directly to such a to such a grim scenario because you know, I, I feel like I'm always in a bubble here in Washington, surrounded by center left public intellectuals. And when I speak to my friends, like I hear words being thrown around that are not the sort of words I thought we would ever be throwing around. I mean, you know, words like civil unrest, words like secession, you know, words like court packing for that matter. Do you feel like that is a general sentiment amongst Democratic voters or at least is has that it has penetrated enough that rank and file Democrats are beginning to question the system more than they, you you know, as much as like, you know, many of the people like me whose job is to write about how the system is starting to fail are starting to question it? So we know from surveys that a significant number of people are deeply concerned about the future of our system as we have known it. And I think that what we've seen in the last week in the aftermath of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death is going to reinforce that for large numbers of people because of the way Senate Republicans are acting, which for those of us who follow this closely on a day-to-day basis does not come as a shock, but will, I think, for a large number of others. And let's face it, the reality here is this is not the sort of thing we would have as a general matter been thinking about, talking about, even considering with any other presidency in our lifetimes, and probably not even outside of our lifetimes, with a couple of exceptions around the Civil War period. Now, we certainly feared for what might happen to our system at a point in the 1960s, when we were having demonstrations that had violence, when we had riots, Uh, including, of course, in the aftermath of the assassination of Martin Luther King, of uh, Robert Kennedy, after John F. Kennedy, the sense that our world had turned upside down. But the idea at that point that all of our institutions at the federal level and many at state levels would turn against the fundamentals of our democracy, of a civil society, would never have occurred, I think, to any of us. And that's the world we live in now. And of course, it is important to emphasize that the conditions for this were set in motion before Donald Trump. It took Donald Trump to provide an accelerant to a fire that was already taking place. So I want to get into how we got there. But before we how we got to this place, before we do, I want to throw out a slightly different scenario. Um, So in this scenario, um, Donald Trump or Joe Biden wins the popular vote by an even larger margin than Hillary Clinton, say five, six million votes. But Trump wins the Electoral College. So under the terms set by our Constitution, he has legitimately won the presidency, even though he has no Democratic claim to that office. What do you think happens in that scenario? 
So I've talked about and written about uh, this phenomena, uh, this dynamic in the past. We have to offer a caveat here, of course, which is that he could do this legitimately, but very possibly in a world where voter suppression has become legitimated, and that in fact, uh, a core reason for him eking out a narrow electoral college victory by eking out very narrow victories in a handful of states, as he did in 2016, is because votes have been suppressed. But that aside, Let me just refer to a number that I use now all the time. By 2040, uh, 70% of Americans will live in 15 states. 50% will live in eight states. Now, there are implications to that for the Senate that we can talk about later that are frightening ones. But the fact is, it means that the Electoral College is going to grow increasingly distorted away from having almost always outcomes where the winner of the popular vote wins the Electoral College without any changes. In the 44 elections from 1824, which arguably is the first time that popular votes were tallied, all the way up through 1996, 44 elections, you could argue that only one had a clear-cut result where the winner of the popular vote lost the presidency. One of 44. We've now had two out of five. Your scenario would make it three out of six. When this happened in 2000, uh, 36 days to get a final result, the winner of the popular vote, Al Gore, losing basically because of a five to four vote in a Supreme Court that really had no legitimate right to intervene uh, in the vote counting uh, in uh, the state of Florida. But Gore graciously conceded. Americans said, somebody's got to make the decision. And we moved on. We didn't move on quite so well in 2016. If this happens again in 2020, we will not move on again. And then we have to keep in mind another reality, which is that if uh, Donald Trump wins the presidency again, he will not just double down, he will quadruple down on the kleptocracy, the corruption, the moves towards autocracy, the moves towards voter suppression with a court that will go along with him. And we may not have elections in the future where we could even lament the possibility of of a uh, winner of the popular vote losing the presidency. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my next question is if Trump does, you know, whether legitimately or illegitimately remain the president for another term, do you think that the United States will be recognizable as a democracy in five years? So recall that after the impeachment vote in the Senate, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and a few others of their colleagues said, well, we think he's learned his lesson. We saw what lesson Donald Trump learned from that. It was, now I'm free to do and say whatever I want. And if anybody thinks that Trump winning the presidency with some semblance of legitimacy in 2020 will become a normal president, Instead of saying, not only can I do whatever I want, I am truly unleashed because the American people have told me I can do whatever I want, and he will have courts that will let him do whatever he wants. We are in for a very bad time, and I would say we can kiss the political system we have known goodbye. So one last scenario, because you brought up the problem of the Senate. Um, and and how it concentrates so much power in states that have so few people. Um, So let's say Joe Biden wins. Um, But let's say, again, possibly because that's what the voters wanted, more likely because malapportionment gives Republicans such an advantage. uh, Republicans hold on to the Senate. So Biden is now going into his presidency with Mitch McConnell as as the Senate majority leader. Can he confirm a cabinet? In that scenario, I think it's quite possible that he'll get some of his cabinet through, but Mm -hmm. not all of his cabinet. I think the ability to pick the kinds of people he might want for Treasury Secretary, even for Secretary of State or Defense, might be blocked by McConnell and his allies. And of course, uh, they would follow through on what McConnell said as the 2016 election loomed which is no judges, period. They will keep the iron fist on the judiciary. So then 
let's look at a scenario where the judiciary keeps become where essentially one party has a lock on judicial confirmations. So it's likely that Justice Ginsburg is going to be replaced by whoever Trump nominates um, to replace her. Um, in the scenario that we just described, Joe Biden may confirm no judges. The judiciary depends on voluntary compliance. You, you know, I mean, like the, the president can conceivably send the U.S. Marshals to enforce a judicial decision. But for the most part, the reason why the judiciary has power is because when the judiciary says something, people obey. You know, at what point do we hit a breaking point where not just individuals, but potentially state governors might withdraw their consent from the judiciary? So let's look at a real nightmare scenario here. And that is that we have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, a Democratic House, and this 6-3 court with the great likelihood that at least five of the six who have been vetted by the Federalist Society who have indicated in previous rulings, certainly uh, we have four who have been pretty consistent in this front, radical views of the role of government in society and the role of the judiciary. And they ramp it up to the next level. And by ramping up to the next level, we're looking not just at a full repeal of the Affordable Care Act and at uh, the end of Roe v. Wade, but we're also looking at the Chevron uh, and Lochner decisions decided or used as a framework in a very different way. You could have a court that will basically take us back to the pre-New Deal period, saying the federal government can do almost nothing. Agencies cannot promulgate regulations without the explicit uh, detail from Congress. And Congress, under the Commerce Clause, can do almost nothing when it comes to health policy or economic policy uh, broadly defined. I think not only would you have a popular uprising, but I do think that Congress and the presidency would find ways to block the judiciary, maybe by going back to limiting the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, maybe by taking steps that would be necessary to enlarge the court. Um, maybe by taking into their own hands the ability to fund the courts. So, so you brought up the Chevron case, and this is one of those incredibly important decisions that I think almost no non-lawyer has ever heard of. Yeah. So Chevron is a case that dealt with the ability of federal agencies to issue reg regulations that are binding on business and the ability of Congress, to a certain extent, to give agencies that power. So could you talk a bit about how that agency regulatory system works and you know, what existing laws rely on it and what could be lost if that system is – if the Supreme Court starts saying that we can't have that kind of regulation? So you know, the fundamental reality is in a very complicated economy and with a government that does have difficulty uh, even – before we had this era of stark polarization and tribalism, of passing all kinds of laws, the laws that get passed tend to be broad ones, giving broad authority for action. And that action is often delegated to administrative agencies. Uh, a prime example here would be environmental laws, air pollution, water pollution, all of the elements surrounding climate change, where the authority is given to the Environmental Protection Agency to take the authority that they have and go out there and come up with specific regulations and the amounts of par particulates allowed in the air, for example. What Chevron, in effect, said was if the agency does this with any degree of regular order, they look at it, uh, at realities on the ground, they follow the Administrative Procedures Act, they do this in a reasonable fashion. They have the authority to move ahead. And that's been accepted by liberals and conservatives for a long period of time. And the practical reality is we couldn't have a government functioning without it. Congress, first of all, can't foresee what might happen out in the real world. Right. You need regulators to do that. That's true when it comes to implementing health policy. 
It's true when it comes to implementing any kind of uh, activity that occurs in the federal government uh, or occurs in the economy uh, writ large. And we've been inching away from that with conservative justices whose basically are, I, I don't even want to call them conservatives. It's a radical view that wants to eliminate government as we know it. And the best way to eliminate government as we know it is to take away the power to do things, regardless of the consequences. So I want to read you a quote. Uh, this is from Mitch McConnell, and I think you'll probably recognize it. He was describing why he thought Republicans had to be unanimous in their opposition to Obamacare. And he said that it was absolutely critical that everyone be together because if the proponents of the bill were able to say it was bipartisan, it tended to convey to the public that, oh, this is OK. They must have figured it out. McConnell's insight, as I understood it, is that he realized that he could block President Obama's agenda and the political blame would fall on President Obama for not being able to govern. Uh, so first of all, do you think McConnell's insight is correct? And second of all, what do you think that that means for a Biden presidency when Biden is going to be dealing with at least one Republican veto point? At the very least, the Supreme Court is likely to be controlled by Republicans who can sabotage his agenda. So we know that on inaugural eve, January 20th, 2009, after Democrats had won a sweeping victory, the presidency, the House, the Senate, and in inaugural balls all over the city, Democrats were celebrating, and the Republicans were demoralized and depressed and disillusioned at what had happened. But a number of their leaders gathered at a restaurant called the Caucus Room, a few blocks from the Capitol, and that included Newt Gingrich, and uh, the so-called young guns in the House, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, and Eric Cantor. It included John Kyle. And they basically, at that dinner, decided on their approach before Obama had been able to do anything as a president. And it was, we are going to be like a parliamentary minority party. We will unite against everything. We will uh, block what we can and delegitimize whatever they're able to get done, whether it's good for the country or not. And they came out of that meeting ebullient. The first thing that we saw was a stimulus package, right? The economy was in dire straits uh, after the financial collapse in the fall of 2008. And I can tell you that the then chair of the House Appropriations Committee, uh, Dave Obey, called in his Republican counterpart, Jerry Lewis, and said, Jerry, we've always operated on a bipartisan basis on this committee. I've been tasked with doing the stimulus. The economy is flat on its back. What I would like you to do is go back to your colleagues, your other leaders, your rank and file members, come back and tell me what things they would like to see in that package and what things are non-starters, and we'll work out a deal. And Lewis laughed and pointed uh, up to the ceiling and said, Dave, I have orders from on high. We are not going to cooperate. That was what Mitch McConnell said more explicitly on the Affordable Care Act. And of course, what we know is it worked like a charm in the midterm elections in 2010. And Republicans won more seats in the House than they had in a century and gained seats elsewhere. Anybody who believes that if uh, Biden wins and the Democrats take the Senate, that McConnell or the other Republicans will, as Biden has said, have an epiphany and say, well, now we've got to work together, just doesn't understand Mitch McConnell, other Republicans, or history. They're going to focus immediately on 2022 and use the same game plan. And if Democrats don't respond to that, better this time than they did the last time, which includes the rules of the Senate. And if they don't respond to the threat that's going to come from the court, then we're going to have a replay of the Obama presidency. And we're going to be back in dire shape again in 2022. We're in a unique electoral moment right now where the combination of Donald Trump just not being up to the job, the pandemic, 
a possible backlash to the Ginsburg um, vacancy and like several other factors that are unlikely to repeat themselves may have put Democrats in a position where they can overcome Senate malapportionment, they can overcome gerrymandering, they can overcome the Electoral College and seriously compete in this election. But like those three conditions are unlikely to repeat themselves in the future. And so if Democrats don't do something to structurally make this our elections more fair, you know, to make it so that we, you know, not that not to rig elections that they always win, but so that we have free and fair elections moving forward. I don't know that they get another shot. No. And, uh, you know, going back to the number that I raised earlier, imagine a world where 30 percent of Americans elect 70 of the 100 senators and that 30 percent from smaller states, not all red states, but they are not in any way representative of the diversity or the economic dynamism of the country. And it would mean Republicans would have uh, a huge advantage going forward uh, to have control of the Senate. And if that's the case, given the nature of our parties, we would be headed for an extended nightmarish period of uh, governmental ineffectiveness at best and dysfunction and possibly sharp movements towards autocracy uh, at worst. Uh, there aren't easy ways of dealing with it, but certainly uh, adding some states, and keep in mind for those who say that this is a radical departure, uh, the Republicans have had uh, Puerto Rican statehood in their uh, platform for decades. So it's not stacking the deck. Uh, it's actually uh, writing a, a little bit of a wrong. And let me also say that I believe we can transform the courts without having a constitutional amendment. Term limits for justices and for uh, at least appeals court judges and uh, righting the wrongs by uh, restoring the courts through some enlargement. So one bit of pushback I often hear. So we're basically talking about two interlocking problems. One is constitutional and other structural pathologies in our system that prevent our elections from producing majoritarian results. The other is that one of our political parties seems quite comfortable with exercising power from the minority and, and, and would like to, to keep doing it. And the pushback that I often hear when I you know try to raise the alarm about this is, well, like, it's bad now, but like, you know, as recently as 2009, Democrats had a supermajority in the Senate. Um, our system worked fine for a really long time, and it's really only been the last decade, maybe a little more, that it's really gone off the rails. So why can't we just wait this out? You, you know, what is the response to folks who say, look, like things get bad and then they get better. And, you know, what is the reason to believe that something has fundamentally changed and that this could be a permanent state? So I actually believe that pathologies developed significantly more than a decade ago. Uh, they've been building and it's not going to get better in part because we have seen not just an ideological polarization in our parties, but a tribalism, which is deadly. We have seen it in the tribal media. We have seen it in the way voters now respond to the process. We have seen it with more straight ticket voting. That's increased dramatically since 2008. And that makes it less likely that this will be self-correcting. Now, I will say one of the things that troubles me deeply is we can't operate in a political system in a healthy fashion without two problem-solving parties. If we only have one and the other is off the rails, dysfunctional, as uh, Tom Mann and I called it, an insurgent outlier, not focused on solving problems in the nation, but on doing whatever they can, no matter how much they breach the rules and the norms to gain power or to uh, block action by others, that's not going to work for very long. So I believe actually that the 2022 election becomes just as significant for the future of the country as 2020. 
If Republicans lose three times in a row, if the strategy that we know they'll employ that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. uniting in opposition, uh, trying to delegitimize everything, doesn't work this next time, it provides an opening for conservatives who want to operate within the norms of the system and solve problems, like the people who run the Lincoln Project, uh, to gain a little traction and maybe begin to either recapture the Republican Party or replace it with something else. If that doesn't happen, we're going to descend into the abyss, and this will not correct itself. Now, keep in mind that there is a reason why the Republicans have done things the way they've done them. And here, let me just step back for a minute. Remember that uh, after they had this process that worked like a charm in 2010, they were absolutely convinced that they had unmasked the Kenyan socialist pretender Barack Obama and that they were going to win a sweeping presidential victory in 2012. And when they didn't, they were stunned. And Reince Priebus, then the chair of the Republican Party, commissioned what he called the autopsy. And it said, oh, my God, we are on a path to oblivion because of the demographics of the country unless we change to begin to attract Hispanic voters and other minorities. We're not going to get anywhere. And he only had one solution, which was to pass a comprehensive immigration bill, which I don't think would have been enough. But it indicated a path, how we can reach out and broaden so that we can compete for a real majority of voters. That same Reince Priebus, just a few years later, took that autopsy and threw it into the trash can as we saw the nativist approach used by Trump. And what Trump has done that they have all bought into is doubling down on a narrowing base of mostly white working class and evangelical Protestant voters and pitting race against race, American against American, with a belief that if they can control the courts and control enough state legislatures because of gerrymandering, use the process that is biased in favor of rural areas and small states, which they have, and rely on voter suppression of the majority, they can gain power and maintain it even if they don't win every subsequent election. And that, of course, is why they've picked, uh, they blocked all the judges that Obama had every right to fill, not just uh, Merrick Garland, uh, but at the appeals court and district court level, misused and abused not just the filibuster, but the so-called blue slip rule in the Senate, and began to pick judges in their 30s and 40s so that even if it occurred that the system maintained some sense of fairness and voters rejected them for decades, they would have judges who were activists who would block uh, the uh, democratically elected representatives from doing much of anything and could maintain their hold on power. They They were at a crossroads. They could have reached out to more Americans and showed that they could solve problems with a more conservative philosophy or they could narrow the base, rely on divisiveness and voter suppression. They chose the latter path, and that's the path they're going down. And anybody who thinks that under those circumstances, the system is naturally going to return to normalcy is uh, deeply, deeply mistaken. And so let me close with the question that I ask everyone at the end of this podcast, which is what is your personal plan for how you plan to count your vo- cast your vote to make sure that that um, vote is counted. Let me say a couple of things on that front. The first is I'm spending much of my time now working with two task forces uh, on election crises to try and make sure the election itself is conducted in a reasonable and fair fashion and that we are protecting against some of the nightmare scenarios you mentioned and a whole lot of others uh, that you didn't. I am chair of the uh, Campaign Legal Center, which is doing yeoman work out there, including many of the lawsuits that have been brought in states uh, to try and uh, enable people to vote and to make sure that those votes are fair. Uh, On my own uh, personal front, beyond all of that, I live in the District of Columbia. And 
you know, my vote is not going to mean that much in terms of the future of the country right now, but I intend to cast it proudly. And I will probably do it uh, by mail uh, just for safety's sake. But in the district, knowing that I will do it early and that the vote will be counted. And that's not the case in a whole lot of uh, other places. So the best that we can do, all of us who have any expertise or ability to reach out to those who can help in other ways, uh, need to be doing it. I don't think any of us can rest or sleep at night if we just don't take all the steps necessary to make sure that everybody we know can vote and vote fairly and that uh, we protect our system from being destroyed from within and, of course, by Russia from without. Well, thank you so much, Norm. I I really appreciate this very unflinching view of uh, the challenges facing us ahead. And thanks for joining me. No time to pull punches, Ian. Thanks again to Norm Ornstein, and I know that was an unsettling interview, but the problems facing our democracy right now are really grim. I don't ever want to leave people with the sense that the appropriate response is despair. So after the the break, we'll be back with Matt and we'll discuss some possible ways to solve the problems with our democracy. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Welcome back. So we're now in the solutions half of this episode, and I'll confess that some parts of this interview with Matt Iglesias are frustrating. We spend a lot of time discussing how Democrats have to play the unfair hand that's been dealt to them, and that means trimming some of the most ambitious ideas that are out there. But there's still a whole lot that can be done. We talk a lot about admitting states, getting rid of the filibuster. We talk some about legislation that could help reinvigorate voting rights. And within the next few months, a lot of these ideas could become law, depending on what happens in this upcoming election. So with that said, here's Matt Iglesias. Matt Iglesias, I'm not not sure whether to welcome you or not, since I've been sort of squatting in your podcast territory for these last few weeks. But thank you for joining. I'm glad to be here back in my own podcast feed. All right. Well, uh, let's start with the part of this conversation that's going to piss people off. You've argued that at least in the short term, Democrats have to, I guess, trim their sails a little bit, that because the electoral system is set up in ways that favor Republicans, Democrats just have to accept that and campaign accordingly. So walk me through specifically what that means. 
Somebody who I think is a good model for how Democrats should think about this is Senator Tammy Baldwin. Uh, she represents Wisconsin in the United States Senate. She has a very solidly progressive voting record. She is a pioneering figure. She was the first gay woman to serve in the House of Representatives. She's the first LGBT person, openly LGBT person, to serve in the United States Senate. And if she had that identity and was from New York, or was from California, or was from Oregon, you would hear about it constantly, right? So much of her political identity would be consumed with her status as this pioneering figure uh, for, for LGBT identity. But she represents Wisconsin. Um, and so it's not an important part of her public identity. It's an important part of who she is. She's not in denial about it. She's not in the closet. Um, and she doesn't like throw LGBT people under the bus in her voting record. Very solidly progressive person. But if you look at her messaging, it is 100% about brass tacks. You know, they call it kitchen table issues, but it's like healthcare yeah. stuff. And then she runs ads that are about local things. You know, she is a champion of the Wisconsin dairy industry and she took on the FDA to get approval for it's something about cheese. Right. And it's just it's interesting because she's not like substantively far from where any other Democrat is from the coast, but her stylistic presentation is very, very, very different. And it's how you do politics to an audience of people that is more rural, whiter, and fundamentally, you know, less into cosmopolitan values than the sort of larger coastal cities. Now, th now, that makes sense. But like Democrats aren't just trying to win Wisconsin. They're trying to win a national election. And so like what I worry about when I think about the, the coalition they're trying to put together is that a lot of the time Democratic politicians talk about identitarian issues. They talk about you know certain left wing issues because they know their voters want to hear that. And so if you don't give those voters what they want to hear, some of them will check out. I mean, there are a lot of left wing voters in this country who don't necessarily have much of a democratic identity and Democrats have to bring them in, too. So how do you serve both beasts here? You know, how, how do you make sure that the people in Wisconsin hear what they need to hear, but the people in New York that Democrats also need, or for that matter, the left wing people in Madison, Wisconsin? hear what they need to hear in order to turn out as well. I mean, it's hard and it's not a fair system, right? When you're competing on an unfair playing field, you have a difficult task. At the same time, you know, it's not for nothing that Barack Obama not only won like Wisconsin and Michigan, he won Iowa, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Democrats traditionally were able to appeal to secular northern non-college white people uh, in a reasonable way, right? And some of that was talking about economic issues. Some of it was talking about topics like abortion rights, uh, where those kind of people lean to the left and don't necessarily agree with, you know, their evangelical uh, sort of neighbors down the street. Uh, some of it, though, is it requires a level of maturity on the part of, I think, not rank and file voters, actually, but groups, right? So something I will hear sometimes is left of center interest groups who don't have any actual doubt that the different presidential candidates have their backs on their key policy topic, complaining that it didn't come up at the debate. Right. And right. you cannot imagine a coal lobbyist saying, oh, I'm really mad that nobody in the GOP field said that they want to make it easier to poison people's drinking water. Right. Because they know that that's not a good way to win an election. They, they want right. their allies to win. And so they encourage their allies to do things that are smart for winning. Right. And if Democrats are, are if, if liberals, right, if civil rights groups like want to make gains, they need to support politicians who deliver for them in concrete ways and who campaign in ways that are necessary to win and keep reminding people that like the system requires reform, but you can't reform the system unless you win. Let's talk about what the system does to Republicans, because mm. like the Democratic dilemma is that they've got to hold together a coalition that includes center right voters who may not be in love with Democrats and left wing voters who may be turned off if they have to be in a coalition with the center right voters. The Republicans don't have anything approaching that dilemma. They can win with less than half of half of the country. So what kind of party 
results when they know that they don't have to win a majority of the nation in order to be able to govern. You know, it's been interesting to watch, right? I, I think Republicans thought that they had gotten lucky in 2000 uh, when they, they mm. sort of caught a break and they won without carrying the popular vote. They've become more comfortable with that as an outcome. Like President Trump has never seemed to even try to win a popular vote majority in any kind of real way. And now then mentally, they've become increasingly acclimated to the idea that there's no such thing as democratic legitimacy. Right. And so then once you sort of step off that norm, there's more and more stuff you can do, whether it's tinkering with the census, tinkering with redistricting, tinkering with the mechanics of voting. Right. Because once you've de-anchored yourself from the norm of majority rules and political equality, it's like you can take yourself anywhere. And there's also just a vision that really brooks no compromise at all. I mean, Democrats don't like to hear, well, you should trim your sails to try to appeal to voters in Wisconsin and Montana. Uh, But at least the state Democratic parties in those places, like they've got no choice and and they do it. And the DSCC knows that's where their map is. Uh, But conservative institutions have become increasingly just not interested in the idea of being more broadly appealing. You said Trump is just like incredibly blasé about the West Coast being on fire. Because like those right. aren't states where he's hoping to compete, right? And it's it gets really weird. It violates the sort of basic assumptions of what a president would be when he becomes the president of a 26-state coalition. So what do you think would happen? Like if hypothetically we woke up tomorrow and we were a parliamentary, you know, unicameral democracy where whoever wins the, the most seats in the legislative election, election governs, What becomes of the Republican Party in that world? I mean, I think in the first instance, they would lose, right? They they would lose a couple of elections badly. Mm -hmm. Democrats would do a bunch of stuff. And then probably Republicans would come back with a huge head of steam. I think what you see in Maryland, you see in Vermont, you see in Massachusetts, is that when progressives have a chance to govern for a while, uh, they do a lot of stuff. And a lot of that stuff is good and popular, but like they overreach. And then somebody like a Charlie Baker or Larry Hogan sweeps in with a kind of, you know, the support of the business community and cultural traditionalists and also just the support of moderate suburbanites or I don't even think they have suburbs in Vermont, uh, but whoever it is that votes for Phil Scott and you get someone who promises competent managerialism and minimal change. Um, But it's... Mm -hmm. It's interesting, right? It's not like the Republican Party becomes irrelevant in blue jurisdictions, uh, except maybe California. They they actually, there's a a lot of political value in small C conservatism. And the forces that conservatism appeals to are sort of interestingly universal, right? Like there's always a sociocultural majority group. There are always people who own businesses. There's always a certain don't rock the boat sentiment. And America's sort of gone on tilt because the minority rules Republican Party has become detached largely from that kind of sentiment of stability into this kind of on tilt, like can push through things that nobody wants and win re-election anyway mentality. Let's talk about how we get to a world where it's a choice between Joe Biden and Charlie Baker and not a choice between Donald Trump and, you know, whatever the Democrats are offering. You know, let's say Democrats overcome all the obstacles, which the polls say they very well could, take back the White House, take back the Senate, either Justice Ginsburg's replacement isn't confirmed or they do something about that. What should be the first thing on the Democratic Party's agenda in order to make sure that we have some kind of democracy in this country? You know, Democrats need to take this seriously. They have a real chance at getting a Senate majority in 2021, uh, but their odds of sustaining a Senate majority are really poor. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is based on things like holding down seats in West Virginia and Montana, Alabama, you know, things that are hard to sustain. The Senate is by far the biggest source of skew in the American political system. And moving to admit D.C., Puerto Rico, maybe even the U.S. Virgin Islands as states, you know, I think it's seen by Democrats as a big step, but it's 
an absolute must do. Um, you, you gotta do it. Then, you know, they should look at other things, ways to curb gerrymandering in the House and particularly in state legislatures. To get any of this done, you have to get rid of the filibuster. And we should have a real voting rights system, you know, with, with automatic voter registration, other kind of protections there. But the source of bias driven by the Senate is just enormous. And historically, the number of states has changed. And right. it's going to have to change again. I mean, like, interestingly, if you, if you go back, like the reason why there's two Dakotas is because Republicans controlled Congress and they wanted two Republican states and not one Republican state. The reason why Nevada was admitted when it was admitted is because Abraham Lincoln wanted two more Republican senators and Nevada was super Republican. So it's not it would not be an outlier over the long arc of American history for Democrats to just admit a bunch of blue states. Right. I mean, we've had detente in state admissions for a long time now. And for a good stretch of that, it didn't seem important, you know, which is like one reason there wasn't a lot of agitation around it. But it is very important right now. Uh, and if Democrats have the chance to adjust it like they should and they shouldn't feel I've seen this described as like Democrats need to learn to fight dirty. Right. Uh, but it's not dirty. I mean, I live in D.C. I don't have Senate representation. Um, it's true that if a hypothetically better system would be to just have a unicameral legislature or something like that. But like the system we have is with a Senate, uh, adding a few more states that are majority people of color will help counterbalance some of the imbalances in the Senate. And it's just a good thing to do. It's a good goal to pursue on its own terms that improves fairness. Uh, similarly on gerrymandering, right? Because of patterns of residential segregation, Democrats actually just can't draw maps that are as unfair as the most unfair Republican maps. Could you explain why that is? Sure. So, you know, the, what you want to do, basically, you know, in an abstract sense, is like find a bunch of 60 40 census blocks and string them together. And then you have like a whole 60 40 district. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you and then you lump all your opposing votes into like a 99 1 district. Right. Cracking and, uh, and packing. Exactly. And because there are a lot of neighborhoods in America that are overwhelmingly black, it is just easier to pack Democrats into geographically compact districts. There are no neighborhoods in America, or very few, that are as GOP-leaning as sort of the black neighborhoods of any big cities. Uh, so it puts Democrats at a natural disadvantage. And some people will look at that and say, well, see, this isn't really a gerrymandering problem at all. Democrats are at a natural disadvantage. Or other people will look at it and say, oh, Democrats are more high minded. Right. You know, they just they just don't play hardball. Uh, but they just they actually can't play hardball as aggressively as Republicans do, which means it is in their interest to do the high minded thing and adopt just strict rules against partisan gerrymandering. It's a case where fairness would benefit them. Right. Uh, and they should, you know, fairness is good, but we don't get fairness usually by coincidence. Finding a political party that would benefit from adopting fair rules um, and urging them to do it, like that's how you get fairness. And, and you know, that's what we should do. So, so one thing I worry about the gerrymandering space, you know, to jump off of what you were saying is that a lot of rules that sound fair are actually will actually advantage Republicans. Like traditionally, when you hear people talk about like what is normally the fair way, well, you want compact districts, you want districts that preserve what are called communities of interest, which means like those black neighborhoods that you're talking about that are overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, like, I think the danger for Democrats is like they risk coming up with the set of criteria that they think are fair and that have historically been discussed amongst voting rights experts as fair, but that actually are not fair and will give an advantage to Republicans. No, I mean, you need a, some kind of a partisan balance rule. Uh, there are different ways mathematically to calculate it. I think ideally, actually, you would want to have multi-member districts with proportional representation, you know, particularly in the, in the states that are below, say, New York or Illinois in size. You could just do a single statewide election and allocate the seats proportionally. But yes, I mean, what you don't want to do is impose a rule that says, well, the districts all need to be nice looking square shapes because that actually creates very lopsided partisan results. And it's bad. I mean, I see people sometimes on Twitter, they will pick out an individual representative 
you know, who they don't like. Right. And they'll show that his district is really funny looking. And they'll be like, ah, you see, gerrymandering brought us this guy. But that's really neither here nor there. Uh, districts are funny looking for all different kinds of reasons. Like Maryland has infamously funny shaped districts. And it's because the different Democratic incumbents are trying to strike a, an ethnic balance so they don't lose to primary challengers. Um, yeah. And, you know, partisan fairness is important in a highly partisan, highly ideological era. So let's go back to the question of statehood. You know, you've pointed out that if D.C. and Puerto Rico were states right now, Republicans would still have the majority. It would be a 53-51 Senate. Mm -hmm. Are Democrats thinking big enough? I mean, you know, they, they could split up California and New York. There are other things that they could be doing if they really wanted to play hardball here. Yeah, I mean, you you can on some level do whatever you want. Um, I, I do think that it's important to come up with ideas that have some kind of... Um, extra, you know, some some kind of uh, public justification right. other than the changes in partisan balance. The idea that the U.S. citizens in the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico um, should have full representational rights is like a strong argument, you know, and if you want to push it further, I would look to U.S. Virgin Islands. I would look to Guam, uh, other kinds of territories. Uh, also, because like traditionally, I mean, it's outside the scope of what we've done for the past couple of generations. But like famously, we used to have 13 states and now we have 50. Right. So it's not like territorial expansion or the addition of new states is unheard of. Um, splitting states is is weird, right? I mean, that happened only one time under very unusual circumstances. Yeah, there's a and, civil war. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we We might propose reversing that. I think might actually be beneficial and make, make West Virginia part of Virginia again. <laughs> yeah, you you could try that. I think I don't know. I, I don't know. That might just create one big red state, though. West Virginia <laughs> I know. is pretty. Man Mansion could easily carry unitary Virginia, right? And uh, I I don't know. Um, just to say, like I, I would distinguish like hardball for hardball's sake yeah. from what are actually fairness ideas mm -hmm. that Republicans have been blocking for partisan reasons. Right. right. If D.C. was not overwhelmingly Democratic, no Republicans would be opposing adding it as a state. Right. right? Like it's not it's it's not hardball to insist that your people should have their fair share of representation in Congress. Right. Um, you know, like you, you could make California into 11 states, but that seems like funny business. I hear what you're saying. What I worry about is that the problems that deface American democracy now are so immense that any kind of solution that's adequate to the size of the problem is going to look really norm shattering. You, you know, in, in order to achieve a balanced Senate, you have to do more than admit D.C. and Puerto Rico. You know, in a few months, it's likely that we're going to have a Supreme Court where a third of the seats were filled by a president who lost the popular vote and confirmed by a block of senators who do not who do not represent half of the country. And so the solutions to that, like court packing, admitting a bunch of states are big and they look scary, but that's the only thing that's adequate to the size of the problem. This is big on the courts, you know, and I do think Democrats need to recapture the language of popular constitutionalism, mm -hmm. right? It cannot, both on the specifics of constitutional interpretation, cannot let the sanctity of Roe v. Wade be a fixed point around which all other rhetoric follows, right. right? Like some sense of the idea that it is wrong for a committee of unelected judges to sit around taking people's Medicaid benefits away was like not articulated during the Obama years, I right. think in a very clear way. I think it's important both because it provides the basis for expanding the number of judgeships if it comes to that, but also like we know that the justices to an extent follow the polls. Right. Like their own perceived legitimacy is something that they think about. And Democrats haven't really discussed in those terms. I have also worried from the beginning about the tendency to slot the problem with Trump into the kind of 
global historical phenomenon of quote unquote populism, mm-hmm. uh, there is a thing that occurs, right? A, a traditional concern of liberals is that a populist demagogue can win an election and establish a plebiscitary dictatorship of some kind. Right. You know, Napoleon, um, to an extent, the guys running Poland right now. It has just never been the case that that's what Donald Trump is doing. Like, he doesn't have a transient majority at his back. And for Democrats to retreat to the language of norms and institutions, when to a large extent it's weird norms and institutions that have put Trump in power rather than, you know, the will of the people or something like that, uh, means like you have to get the story right. You know, that like what Democrats are asking for is popular government. And, you know, that is both in terms of laying the groundwork for institutional changes, but also pressuring the institutions themselves to be responsive in the right kind of way, right? To say that we don't accept on some level that, you know, Brett Kavanaugh should just decide what policy is for the whole country. So I worry that there's a divide amongst, you know, certainly amongst elite Democrats on this in that. Well, I think there is a trend in the Democratic Party to saying things have gotten so bad that we need to take drastic steps to make our country more democratic. I think there are going to be a lot of voices after Trump that say, man, it's a good thing the filibuster was there and it kept Trump from repealing Obamacare. Or, you know, man, like it's good that there was that one court decision that came out our way. So we sure don't want to tear down the judiciary. And Democrats are going to have to make a choice about whether they are going to take a risk in order to make us more democratic. And there's going to be a veto power held by the most conservative Democrats because they're going to need to get a huge percentage of their coalition to sign on to this agenda. You know, do you think they're going to be able to to build the kind of majority they're going to need in order to push a pro-democracy agenda? I think it's a very serious risk. I mean, I think that there is a lot of small C conservatism in some liberal interest groups mm-hmm. and also that the uh, – the influence of kind of elite Democratic Party lawyers on the Democratic Party's thinking about constitutional issues has not been that constructive, I would say. Yeah, tell uh, me about it. Or, or past, you know, because they, I mean, to be perfectly frank, it's a lot of these people have personal and business relationships that depend on being well-liked by elite conservative yeah. lawyers. Um, and, it, and it distorts their thinking. Uh, but this is why democracy and equal representation is a good lodestar, right? Because it is a it is a normative shelling point that people can converge on and that it is difficult, I think, on some level to disagree with, right? Because there will be tremendous pressure if Trump is out of office to say the crisis has passed, right? The reality is that you will be getting an opportunity to democratize a system which has made Trump possible, right? And it it has to be seized because if you relax yourself too much in that moment, uh, you, you reap the whirlwind, right? And so much, I think, of the Obama years needs to be understood in that way, right? A belief that Obama personally somehow was going to overcome the problems that had led to his election. And so it wasn't important that structural changes be made uh, because his his own possibility somehow proved that the structure was okay, right? And we need to remember that like that is not the case, that we have seen there are very serious infirmities in the system and that we need to worry about them a lot on an ongoing basis and that people are entitled to have their voices heard and their votes counted. I mean, I think this sort of... um, Racial reckoning of of the summer of 2020 should be useful in that regard. I mean, I don't know if it will be, but it's like, how do you say to African-Americans, we take all of your claims seriously, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, et cetera, but we are okay with a legislature where you have diluted voting power. Right. Like, that's crazy, right? Like, that's the most the most banal racial justice claim I can think of, is that, like, your vote should also count. Right. 
right? So like, if we can't achieve that, then like, what are we saying about any of these harder issues about how police departments work and, you know, how the inner workings of of our businesses and, and things like that? Like, if you can't have basic political equality that we claim to be establishing with the 1965 Voting Rights Act, like, what are we doing here at all? So that's that's a good place to stop. So let's close with the question that I'm asking everyone at the end of the podcast, which is what is your personal plan for how you are going to vote and make sure that, that vote is counted? Uh, I'm going to do early in-person voting. Um, I have been persuaded that people wearing masks and not yakking at each other is a reasonably safe kind of environment. I have never known voting lines to be super chatty places. Uh, and I think that's probably just the easiest thing to do is do it in person, go on an early voting time so you can make sure you get it done. And if for some reason something goes cataclysmically wrong, can come back another day. All right. Matt Iglesias, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I'll be back next week with our last episode of By the People, and that episode's going to focus on what the Supreme Court has done to undercut our democracy. My name is Ian Milheiser. You can find me on Twitter at at imilheiser. This show was produced by Jackson Bierfeld. It was edited by Albert Ventura. Our executive producer is Liz Nelson. And this show is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Visit vox.com slash podcast to find more of our shows. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts.